you'll open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And uh, we will begin to notice some of the things that the wise teacher will instruct us concerning his observations about things under the sun. Uh, And we have looked at this series as understanding that Solomon is really writing a journal and he is drawing conclusions based upon his observations of the belief that things will always be greener on the other side of the fence, that life would always be better if we just had one more thing or if we had just a little bit more time like we looked at last week. All of these different variables that we place upon our lives and think, if I just had a little bit more success, more power, more money, more wealth, then my life would be better. And and here is Solomon in his journal explaining that he has tried all of these things and they have been failures. There has not been lasting joy. There has not been satisfaction. None of those things have been found. In fact, what he has found are two key words, uh, key phrases uh, in this book is futility. Uh, everything is simply futile. There's not going to be lasting joy. And there's not going to be a great value in the things that, that are going on with life under the sun. And that's then the other key point is chasing after the wind. That trying to strive for these things in this world by removing God from the equation is simply like trying to catch the wind. It is a waste of time. And so now we're going to look at chapter 4. And we're going to notice as he goes to this chapter some of the points he's already made. And again, I want you to consider uh, the reason for that is he just makes more observations. He sees more things going on on the earth and in society that causes him to point out again, yeah, remember that point we made, and then he'll amplify upon that point some more. And so uh, we will recapture some of the points we've already been made, but he's going to draw out uh, a little bit more from those uh, observations. So chapter 4, the first three verses, again I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I admired the dead and who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen evil activity that is done under the sun. This is an interesting point in the journal of just saying, boy, you can sure look around in this world and see a lot of evil. And I think we do a pretty good job in life trying to close the blinders and not see it, to not think about it, because it's a very depressing point to think about all of the awful things that go on in this world, and even within our own society, but, but certainly globally, it is a, a, a depressing, difficult thing to look at the oppression and the evil that exists in this world. He makes an interesting point that uh, those that are oppressed don't have any power to get out of that situation. The oppressors, they're the ones that have the power and they do not use that power for good. They don't use that to help people. They don't help the oppressed. Instead, they continue to oppress all the more. And, and, And so I think it is important for us to see that this is kind of a reality check that that Solomon brings is that the, the world is just evil. And when you when you read this, you'll you'll see that. The world is just simply evil. And and we can think about that historically. How how is it that there could be somebody I told you I was doing watching a World War II documentary kind of thing. How is it that there could be somebody so evil who would try to exterminate anybody who was not of their own race? I mean how could you be that evil? 
Uh, how could you be so evil to want to strap bombs on your back and walk on into public facilities? To fly planes in the buildings. I mean, this is what Solomon can sit back even in his own day and age and just simply be mindful and shake his head of the world's full of oppression. The world's full of evil. You can't avoid that. You're not going to be able to find uh, this wonderful utopia in, in, in this world. And for some reason, uh, I think as humans, we have the tendency to expect that. Uh, we expect that we're all going to be able to hold hands across the earth and be able to sing songs together and want to have everybody buy the world a Coke. And, you know, it would just all be wonderful. And, and here's Solomon pointing out thousands of years ago that's just not the way it is. And I think there's a good reality check and reminder for us that there's a reason why we need the armor of God. We just sang the song, uh, the, the Soldiers of Christ Arise. And if you carefully read those words, that's what it's saying. Uh, placing the armor of God to make sure that there's nothing that has not been uncovered. To take every virtue and every strength and put it on. Leave no weakness of the soul. This is describing the armor being placed upon us because we are walking in an evil world. It says in a good place. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of bad deeds being done. There are people who are self-centered, who are more interested in their own successes, in their own power, and using it not to help others, not for good, but for evil. We have to be mindful that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Satan's running around in this world doing everything he can. And we should not be overthrown or, or have our faith shaken because of the kind of evil that we see. We've spent some time way on back talking about free will, and unfortunately this is one of the, the powerful consequences of humans having choice and free will is that unfortunately many people choose to use their free will and use their opportunities to commit evil. And I found it interesting those verses when he says there in verse 2 that he admired those who had already died more than the living and in verse 3, better off to have never been born. You know, is it not every generation who steps back and scratches their head and goes, I'm concerned for my great-grandchildren, what the world will be like. I suppose that has gone on all the way even back to here in the days of Solomon, looking forward and saying, you know, it would be better off the person who wasn't even going to be born into this kind of situation, into this kind of evil. And so we're seeing that the world doesn't change. And those kinds of feelings of looking out and seeing how awful things are and seeing the evil all around, we begin to question, boy, I don't know what it's going to be like in the future. Again, realizing that Solomon is taking God out of the equation and looking at everything from a human perspective and going, very depressing without God. If all there is in this world is what we see on the surface, we see all that evil and all that oppression, if that's all there is to life, better not to have been born. And better are those who've already died. Because all of us are going to get to experience those difficulties and experience evil against us and experience oppression. And that's the conclusions that he's drawing. You take God out of the equation and look at what this worth is, amounts to. It amounts to a very sad thing. And so those are the, the, what the verse, first four or three verses are about. And I think that reminds us that the Scriptures give us the charge to fight 
against evil, to fight against oppression. That is a duty of ours that's seen uh, really throughout the early pages of the Scriptures and all the way through. I put a New Testament one up there about how pure and undefiled religion is helping the downtrodden, helping those who are the outcasts. And you see that when you study the prophets. What is one of the main condemnations given against Israel and Judah except that they killed the innocent, the bloodshed of those who were undeserving... Uh, the oppression of the downtrodden, God just railed against Israel and Judah for not standing up for the rights of the innocent. And we need to be mindful that we have a duty to fight against oppression, to not be oppressors, to fight against evil and not be evildoers. And here is Solomon looking at these conclusions and going, it's a sad thing to look out in this world and see the evil that exists. The next section changes gears as he now goes to another journal point. He's going to bring us back to being uh, workaholics. Remember we talked about that a, a couple of weeks ago, the problem of being a workaholic, and he talked about the futility of, of overworking, that, uh, that he spoke of the earnings that are made that person can't enjoy, and you do, do all of this work to accumulate, and it's left to somebody else. You can't take it with you. And even worse than all of that, the one you leave it to, it never worked a day in his life like he, as hard as you worked, or... And, and or, they're complete fools who will squander. And so he spent time talking about the foolishness of overworking, and now he's going to address it here again. Notice it in, uh, in chapter 4 and in verse 4. He says, Then I saw all, that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is futility and striving after wind. This is an interesting observation because he seems to pose a self-question. So why do we overwork? Why do we plunge ourselves into so much work day in and day out? Why are we trying to do that? And notice his conclusion that it amounts to envy. And if I could put that phrase into a 21st century American paraphrase for us today, the Brent Kircherville translation would be, we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. That is exactly what he's observing. The reason we strive and strive and work and work is because we see other people with things and we want to have that stuff too. They've got all of these nice toys to play with. They have all of these great advantages with their wealth and their possessions. And we look out across the street and we see them with all these things and I want that too. But maybe worse than that is that we don't really want it to. We want more than what they have. We want to be the name on the block. We want everybody to look at our new boat, our new car, our new house. I don't want to just be equal with my neighbor. I don't want to just keep up with the Joneses. I want to blow the Joneses away in the dust. I want to be up on top. And that's what Solomon identifies as one of the main reasons why humans work so hard is that it is rivalry. It's about competition. To be able to show that, well, I've got more and you've got nice stuff and I should be able to have nice stuff. And, and within whose mind has it not gone through of, well, we make more than they and so how come we don't have that kind of stuff like they have? I work harder than them and I should have those things too. And here's Solomon just put his finger on saying, you see the rivalry that humans have. And it's the reason why we overwork. And I want you to consider this conclusion to this. He says, this is futility. This also is chasing the wind. Why? 
Why not? Why, why not spend life keeping up with the Joneses? Why can't this be the great life pursuit? Why can't this be our purpose? And I, I think there are some obvious considerations of that. First, you're never going to stay ahead of your neighbors. <laughs> as much as you try, for a few days you might be number one on the block. You might have the newest and the best, but guess what? There will be a time where somebody will get something newer, something better. And it eventually get to the point where there'll be things you can't afford. They'll get new toys and you say, I can't afford those new toys. It is a futility to try to keep up with everybody around us. It is a waste of time to look at it and go, well, they've got nice things. I want nice things. And so I'm going to have some nice things. And so I'm going to do everything I can to have nice stuff. Why? They're going to continue to outdo you. You'll never be able to put a cap on the top and say, okay, Nobody else can surpass me because of this great thing that I have. Really? It won't happen. It's just chasing wind. It's something that can never be grasped. I would like for us to consider, though, can I get us to think about who cares? Who cares if somebody has something you don't have? We really need to have, I think, as Christians, that attitude of it doesn't matter that somebody else has something, rather than exhibiting envy, we ought to be exhibiting joy. Isn't that nice that they were able to enjoy the fruit of their labor? Isn't that exactly what we have been talking about, that Solomon has been admonishing us in this life, is enjoy the fruit of your labor. Don't kill yourself working. Enjoy the things that you have. And we should be able to not be, oh, I can't believe that they got that. I should have something like that. Be happy. I'm glad they could have that. I'm glad they're enjoying that possession, that wealth, that property, whatever it is. Why should we really care? I submit to you that the only reason we ever care about what somebody else has is because we derive our own personal value from possessions. We think we're nothing because they have something. And I want you to see, all that we're doing is we're placing our own human existence and value upon stuff. As if I'm only a good human being, a likable human being, I only have purpose in this world if I have more stuff. Are you kidding? Does stuff define us? I'm afraid to say yes, it does. It really often does. And I hope that we'd be able to step back as Solomon does and just simply realize, you know, that's futility. Trying to acquire, trying to overwork to have more and more and more. What's the point? Who cares if somebody has more? Somebody will always have more. I'm not interested in having VIP treatment. I'm not interested in having to be top dog. I don't want to have all those concerns. Don't worry about those things. I think verse 5 is interesting because it, it, it seems to be almost that there's a dialogue going on, but we're only getting one side of the journal dialogue. Of, okay, well, uh, if we shouldn't be overworking, if we shouldn't be expending all of our energy with work and work and work, should we just quit? Let's just not work at all. Let's just sit down and just take our ease. Let's just forget work. If it's not about possessions, and if it's not about working and overworking and doing all that, well, let's just forget it all. And I want you to notice then, verse 5, the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. 
This is actually very funny in the Hebrew. <laughs> what he's doing is making a, a very humorous joke, because obviously nobody says that and eat, them, eat themselves. But that's the point, is that uh, you're going to become, become so impoverished, you're going to become so nothing that you'll be consuming yourself. He says, the fool sits down and says, all right, I'll just fold my arms and do nothing. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do anything. That, that's a waste of time. Why work? I want you to see that what Solomon is going to do here is he's drawing out that there's balance in life. It's not about overworking, nor is it going to say, well, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to fold my arms. I'm not going to do anything in life. I'll just let everybody else take care of me. I'll just, you know, kind of be a sponge on the system. No, that, that, that's not it either. Notice in verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil. And striving after wind. Interesting. Better to have one hand of quietness. I think it's interesting. Not two hands. Not the person who's got the arms folded up. Doing absolutely nothing. Completely lazy. Completely slothful. Not going to pick up his finger to do anything. No, no. But not two hands full of toil. Not overworking, not expending every effort on the job, always thinking about work, always doing work, working extraordinary hours. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how society places a value upon men. Men, if you're not working way past 40 hours a week, you're worthless. Society pressures us and tells us that you need to be working overtime, overtime, overtime. If you're not at work at the crack of dawn and you're not at work until midnight, who are you? You're a, you're a waste. And how society has done that to women as well. Work at home, work at work at, in, in society. You need to be doing both. And if you don't have a secular job, you're nothing. Notice the words here. One hand. One hand of quietness. Don't put two hands into toil. Don't put yourself into that overworking position. Enjoy quietness. Be able to place one hand out there and enjoy the fruit of labor. And so I would sum this up by saying, stop looking at what others have and stop working for what others have. Enjoy what you have. And I think that's really the conclusion of what the one hand of quietness is about. Is stop looking around at what everybody else has. Stop having the envy of, well, look at all the things they get to do. Look at all the vacations they get to spend. I should be able to have that too. They're getting promoted. I should be promoted. I've worked for many more years. I should be able to experience that. Just stop. What does it matter? Enjoy what you have. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Enjoy your earnings. Enjoy your family. And that's really the connection of what he's going into in verses 7 and 8. He's talking about enjoying what you have. He's not only talking about your finances. Enjoy your earnings that you have. Stop overworking. If you overwork, you can't enjoy anything in this life. But to put that together and say, work just enough so that you can get by, so that you can enjoy your earnings and your time with friends and with family. Notice now verse 7. Again, I saw under the sun... There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is futile and a miserable task. 
This is an interesting description as he now takes it a little bit step further. He says, you know, I saw a person. And you know what he was? He had nothing in life. He didn't even have a companion. He didn't have brother, sister. He didn't have family. He didn't have friends. Now, obviously, he must have. But he's saying he didn't have any relationships. He didn't have any close relationships with any of his family members. He didn't have any close relationships with any friends. Why? Because he's toiling and toiling and toiling. He's just engrossed in work. And he's so engrossed in work, he's lost everything that's really of any value. He's lost the family. He's lost companions. He's lost friends. And make it even worse, notice he's still not satisfied with his riches. And he can't even stop for just a moment to ask the question, why am I toiling so much? Why am I working as hard as I am working? Why? Hmm. I find it interesting, these conclusions that he draws from this person, because this is a situation that we often don't see, is that there, one, there's no end to one's toil. There's never going to be a stopping point where we're going to step back and go, oh, now that, that's enough you're not going to find the satisfaction there. And that's what he, he says there uh, in, in verses 8. And in, in verse eight. Uh, here he talks about this person who's not content with riches. All of that work, all of that labor, all of the overtime, all of that extra labor, you're not finding satisfaction in it. There's no end to the toil. There's always more work to do. <laughs> now the frustration of work there's never a time where you sit there and go, yeah, it all just stopped, and now I don't have anything to do. <laughs> it's a kind of a frustrating thing. There's always more. I can tell you, Sunday night when I go home, at about 9 o'clock as I'm packing up all my stuff, it is a very depressing feeling sometimes to go, now it starts all over again. <laughs> all of the work that I have put in to come to the culmination of Sunday... It's now done. And I take a deep breath and I think in my mind, I have to do it again tomorrow. <laughs> it always comes back. That's work. That's what work is all about. It never stops. So why plunge yourself into it? Why be overworking? It's not giving you satisfaction. It's giving you frustration. Is it giving you riches so that you will be content? Not at all. There's no satisfaction there. You still want more. And then he draws the conclusion, he says, and you know what in the process? You lost everything that mattered. When you overwork, pretty hard to have friends. Can't have good friends, you're always at work. Can't have good family relationships, you're always at work. He didn't say this, I'll throw it in. Can't have a good relationship with God, you're always at work. You've just plunged yourself into work that you've got nothing left. And this is, the, I've heard this argument so many times and it's so sad to me to hear people make this argument, well, I'm going to work really hard right now so that in 10 years, 15 years, and 20 years, and 25 years, and 5 years, we will have X amount of money, I'll be able to take a rest, and we'll be able to use that money, and we'll spend all of this time together. I've heard that rationalization over and over again. And every time the family's not there, when that time of period of work is done, either because of divorce, because the husband was never there, or, yes, they may stay married, but they don't have a relationship because he was never around. He 
was always working. And the children resent the father because he wasn't there. Husband and wife don't hardly know each other because he's overworked. He's never been there. And so now you've accumulated all this stuff and you have nobody to spend it with. That's the conclusion Solomon is drawing here, that this is foolishness, absolute foolishness, to plunge oneself into this kind of labor. Notice verses 9 through 12, because he continues on uh, with this argument. Verse 9, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. If but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if somebody overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands. It's not easily broken. Let me make some summarizations from that. One, people are better companions than wealth. <laughs> People are far better companions than wealth. You know, wealth doesn't talk back to you. Wealth doesn't pick you up. Wealth doesn't keep you warm. Wealth isn't a good conversation piece. Wealth isn't something to come home to at night. And notice the argument that he's making there. It is better to be two than to have one. Why would you want to throw away your friends? Why would you want to throw away family? Why would you want to cast all that off? Notice the words, pity the person who falls down and has no one to lift them up. That's a choice that person makes. I have seen this happen so many times, and I've always scratched my head. How can there be this elderly person who has nobody to help them anymore, nobody to take care of them? What has happened? Somebody on one side or the other or both have burned the bridges of that relationship that they don't care of their physical circumstance any longer. That's sad. That nobody cares. All alone they sit. And nobody pays attention. What happened? I think as Solomon is pointing out, often what happens is we choose the physical instead of the relationships. We choose wealth instead of people. We would rather spend time at work rather than helping one another, helping friends, helping family. Be careful of that choice. I submit to you what Solomon is, is implying to us is that the good life is not about being self-sufficient. Our world really drives home that you and I need to be self-sufficient. We don't need anybody. We need to be able to take care of ourselves. We don't need people to help us. We need to be independent and self-sufficient. Solomon is saying, not so fast. That's not the good life. Self-sufficient means alone, by yourself, nobody to care. Because you've cut off your relationships and you've burnt your bridges. Be dependent upon companions. Be dependent upon friends and family. Better to spend time with them. Enjoy time together. Life is better with more people, not in isolation. Our society has moved away from that concept and has moved squarely into isolation. We don't need anybody. We'll take care of ourselves. We don't need friends. We don't need family. I'll just be by myself. 
And I think we need to open our eyes and think about what that really means. <laughs> it means being all alone. Self-sufficiency is not what God had in the plan. And I think you see that in the scriptures. If God wanted us to be self-sufficient, then God would not have recognized the need for Eve. If God wanted us to be self-sufficient, God would have recognized that there not to be a need for a local church. God didn't program us for independence from every human being on the planet. We're built to be together. And so this is the picture that he draws in, these, in this in verse 9. Two are better than one, enjoying the reward of their efforts. Far better to enjoy your earnings and enjoy your life with somebody else. Enjoy vacations with other people rather than by yourself. One falls or somebody lifts you up. When you go through the hard times in life, you've got friends, you've got family to support you, to encourage you, to help you. You're not by yourself. He goes on. In verse 11, of lying down and keeping warm. Here is just companionship. And he's not talking about anything sexual here. He's just talking about, isn't it nice to be around people? Isn't it nice to be social? Isn't it nice to have those bonds and those relationships? And verse 12, when somebody tries to harm, more can resist. And then I like the very ending. Even three are better than one. Notice, just keep adding people on. Can't have enough friends. Can't have enough faith. Some conclusions that I think that he draws, and I'd like to use the words of Jesus as the overriding conclusion, because I think what Jesus taught concerning the rich fool fits exactly all that Solomon has tried to describe as he has jotted these things in his journal and said, Look at the things in this world. Jesus said, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. That, in one sentence, I think, says all that Solomon was trying to drive home. Life is not about stuff. Life is not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's not about overworking. It's about enjoying the fruit of your labor. It's about enjoying friends and family. It's about enjoying your brethren and walking through this life. It's not about more stuff and things and money. Those things won't find or bring you happiness. And so Solomon, I think, could sum up by saying the sorrow of success is great. In fact, that's what I titled this lesson was The Sorrow of My Success. And that's really what Solomon is writing about as he had everything. He had the ability to try everything that there was in life. At the end of his life, that's all he found was great sorrow. We have a saying in this world that the one who dies with the most toys still wins. I think we ought to modify it to say the one who dies with the most toys still dies. He dies alone at the life full of toil. That's the truth of the matter. You still will die. You still cannot take it with you. And you will die alone as nobody will care about you on your final days. Because you have burnt every bridge. Because you did not care about anybody else. But you were selfish. Plunging yourself into your work. So... Hear the, heed the, the warning of Solomon. He tried it. He could go out into that world and try all those things. He went into those resources. He went into that work world. He plunged himself to try to find satisfaction there. It wasn't found. I know you can believe him. Have you had lasting satisfaction from your work? 
lasting satisfaction from your wealth? That you've been able to sit down and go, I don't need to work anymore. Everything's good. I'm taken care of. It's not the way life works. You don't find meaning there. You don't find great value there. That's why Solomon said it was futility. It's chasing the wind. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. Don't overwork. Work what is necessary and spend the remaining time with friends and family enjoying the fruit of your labor. That's the lesson that Solomon gives from Ecclesiastes 4. Pull your psalm books out. We'll now sing an invitation song. And when we sing this song, we're going to invite you to come to Jesus Christ. We're going to invite you to turn away from the life of selfishness and the life of worldliness. A world that says to be independent, to live for yourself, to take care of number one, put yourself first. You can't help others till you take care of yourself. And here's Solomon going, you're ruining your life if you live life this way. We talked about last week how Ecclesiastes 3 fits this so well. Time is short. You only have 86,400 seconds today. You don't have much time. Enjoy the time that you've been given with the family that you have. It won't be that way for long. And never, never take for granted that your family will be there in the future. It will only be there if you put the time in now. Use the things that you have now for the family you have now. Use the time you have now for the friends you have now. Enjoy the time now to serve God and to be with your brethren. Don't assume tomorrow will be better. Come to Jesus. See the wisdom in living for God. See the wisdom of turning away from a life of selfishness. Confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that He came to this world, He died for your sins, and He raised again three days later. Confess Him, believe in Him, be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can do that this morning while we stand and while we sing.